what's, of course, on everybody's mind the last uh, two months or so uh, is, you know, what, uh, what's going to be the situation on, in terms of health in the United States and what's going to be the situation in terms of the economy in the United States in the months and perhaps the years to come. And uh, I don't really have anything to add to your knowledge on health. Uh, uh, I, uh, in school, I, I did okay in accounting, but I was a disaster in biology. And uh, uh, I, I'm learning about uh, these various matters the same way you are. And I think, uh, uh, personally, I, I feel extraordinarily good about being able to listen to Dr. Fauci, who I never heard of a year ago, but I think we're very, very fortunate as a country to have somebody at 79 years of age who appears to be able to work 24 hours a day and keep a good humor about him and communicate in a, in a very, very uh, straightforward manner about fairly complex subjects and tell you when he knows something and when he doesn't know something. So I, uh, I'm not going to uh, talk about any political figures at all or, or politics generally uh, this afternoon, but uh, I do feel that, uh, that I owe a huge debt of gratitude to Dr. Fauci for educating and informing me, uh, actually along with my friend Bill Gates too. Uh, as to what's going on, and I know I get it, uh, I get it from a straight shooter when I get it from either one of of those. Uh, so thank you, Dr. Fauci. Uh, uh, the when this hit us, and as I sit here in this auditorium with 17 or 18,000 empty seats, um, the last time I was here, it was absolutely packed. Uh, Creighton was playing Villanova. And there were 17 or 18,000, whatever it holds, it was full. And there wasn't one person in that crowd, this was in January, there wasn't one person in that crowd that didn't think that, uh, that March Madness wasn't going to occur. I mean, it, uh, it's been a flip of the switch in a huge way in terms of national behavior, uh, the national psyche. It's, uh, it's dramatic. And when we started on this journey, which we didn't ask for, uh, it seemed to me there was an extraordinary wide variety of possibilities on both the, the uh, health side and on the economic side. I mean, it was... You know, there was DEFCON 5 on one side and DEFCON 1 on the other side, and, and nobody really knows, of course, all the possibilities that there are, and they don't know what probability factor to stick on them. But in this particular situation, it, it did seem to me that, that there was an extraordinary range of things that could happen on the health side, and an extraordinary range in terms of the economy. And, and of course, they intersect and affect each other, so they're... They're bouncing off each other uh, as you go along. Uh, and I would say, again, I don't 
I don't know anything you don't know about health matters. Uh, but I do think the range of possibilities has narrowed down somewhat in that respect. We know we're not getting a best case, and, and we're, we know we're not getting a worst case. Uh, uh, the, the possibility initially uh, of the virus was hard to evaluate, and it's still hard to evaluate. There's a lot of things we've learned about it and a lot of things we know we don't know, but at least we know what we don't know, and, and some very smart people are working on it, and we're learning as we go along. But uh, the virus obviously has been very transmissible, and it's, but on the good side, and it, it's not, not that good, but it is not as lethal as it might have been. We had a we had a Spanish flu in 1918, and my dad and four siblings and his parents went through it, and they have a terrific story in the March 15th edition of the Omaha World Herald that you can go to omaha.com and look up. It's also on the first page, I believe, of Google if you put in Spanish flu Omaha. And during that particular time uh, in maybe four months or so, uh, Omaha had 974, I believe, deaths. And that was a half of 1% of the population. Uh, and that figure wasn't greatly different than around uh, the country. So if you think of a half of 1% of the population now, you're talking a million, seven or thereabouts people. and. Unfortunately, in terms of the worst case, this does not appear to, uh, uh, in fact, I think you can almost rule it out it being as lethal as the Spanish flu was. But uh, it's very, very transmissible. And, of course, we have the problem. We don't know the denominator in terms of exactly how uh, lethal it is because we don't know how many people have had it and didn't know they had it. Uh, but in any event, the, the range of probabilities on health have narrowed down somewhat. I would say the range of probabilities or possibilities and uh, on the economic side are still extraordinarily wide. You know, we do not know exactly what happens when you voluntarily shut down a substantial portion of your society. Uh, in, in 2008 and 9, uh, our economic train uh, went off the tracks. Uh, and there were some reasons why the roadbed was weak in terms of the banks and all of that sort of thing. But the train went, uh, this time we just pulled the train off the tracks and put it on a siding. And uh, I don't really know of any parallel uh, of a, in terms of a very, very, well, the most important country in the world, uh, most productive, uh, huge population, uh, in effect, sidelining its economy and its workforce, and uh, obviously and unavoidably creating uh, a huge 
amount of anxiety and changing people's psyche and causing them to somewhat lose their bearings in some many cases, understandably. Uh, this is quite an experiment. And we may uh, know the answer to, to most of the questions reasonably soon, but we may not know the answers uh, to some very important questions for many years. So it still has this enormous range of possibilities. I don't know. And perhaps with a bias, I don't believe anybody knows what the market is going to do tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. I know America is going to move forward over time, but I don't know for sure. And we learned this on September 10th, 2001. And and we learned it a few months ago in terms of the virus. Anything can happen in terms of markets. And if you, you can bet on America, but you have to be careful about how you bet. Uh, because... Uh, simply because markets can do anything. On October, whatever it was, in 1987, October 11th, I believe, Monday, the yeah, markets went down 22% in one day. In 1914, they closed the stock market for about four months. After 9-11, closed the market for four days. We hustled to get it going again. But nobody knows what's going to happen tomorrow. So when you, when you bet, I tell you to bet on America, and I tell you that that's what's really gotten me through ever since I was, bought my first stock when I was 11. I mean, this, that, I, I caught a huge, huge, huge tailwind in America, but it didn't, wasn't going to blow in my direction every single day, and you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And uh, I would like to, in the context of the present news, point out something you may find kind of interesting. Uh, uh, if you go to YouTube, uh, you'll find on June 17th of 2015, four plus years ago, you'll find Sam Nunn, who's one of the people I admire the most in the United States, in the world, enormous patriot, and tremendous senator, and uh, he's carried on thankless work uh, since leaving the Senate, and I'd say heading something called the Nuclear Threat Initiative, which most of you haven't heard of, but... but uh, I've been slightly involved in it. Sam Nunn founded that. And the Nuclear Threat Initiative simply organizations that are devoted to trying to reduce the chances of, of something of a nuclear, chemical, biological, and now cyber nature from either malevolent or accidental or whatever it may be from uh, causing 
deaths to millions of Americans. And, and uh, uh, among the things, that Sam co-founded it, and, uh, uh, but he's been the heart and soul of the organization uh, subsequently. And, and they talked about, worried about, pandemics among, along with the nuclear threat for decades. And he's participated in war games where they play out various scenarios, including malevolent pandemics that could be started by the same kind of nut that sent the anthrax letters in uh, around 9-11, a little after. Uh, and Sam paired on this YouTube uh, presentation, and I'm sure he's been on many others. I just happened to look this one up and uh, uh, talked about the dangers of a pandemic. And anybody should listen to Sam on any time he talks. So I, uh, he said at that time, germs, germs don't have borders, which we've certainly learned in the last couple of months. And I, uh, when I clicked on YouTube, if you'll go to the next, uh, I found out that it had recently it had 831 views and this this was only a few days ago I looked it up and uh, maybe I don't know whether most of those views have just been the last few days because or the last few months I should say because of the interest in pandemics but uh, it is hard to think about things <clears throat> that haven't happened yet and uh, uh, <clears throat> so we can experience you know one when, when uh, something like the current pandemic happens, uh, uh, it's just it's hard to factor that in, and that's why you never want to use borrowed money, and at least in my view, margin to buy into investments. Uh, uh, and we run Berkshire that way. We run it so that we literally try to think of the worst case of not only just one thing going wrong, but other things going wrong at the same time, maybe partly caused by the first, but maybe independent even of the first. And, uh, you know, that you learned in, in, I don't know what grade now, probably earlier than when I went to school, but in fifth or sixth grade that anything, you can have any series of numbers times zero and just need one zero in there and the answer is zero. And, and uh, there's no reason to use borrowed money to participate in the American tailwind, but there's every other reason to participate. The airline business, and I I may be wrong and I hope I'm wrong, but uh, I think it, it changed in a very major way. And it's obviously changed in the fact that there four companies are each gonna borrow, you know, perhaps an average of at least 10 or 12 billion each, well, you have to pay that back out of earnings over some period of time. I mean, you're 10 or 12 billion dollars worse off if that happens. And of course, the, in some cases, they're having to sell stock or sell the right to buy a stock at these prices. Uh, and that takes away from the, the upside down. Uh, and I don't know whether it's two or three years from now that, that as many people will fly as many passenger miles as as uh, they did 
last year. They may and they may not, it's, uh, but the future is much less clear to me about how the business will turn out through absolutely no fault of the airlines themselves. That's um, something that was a low probability event happened and it happened to hurt particularly um, whether it's the travel business, the hotel business, the cruise business, the theme park business, but the airline business in particular. And of course, the airline business has the problem that if if the business comes back 70% or 80%, the aircraft don't disappear. Uh, so you've got... Uh, You've got too many planes, and, and uh, no, it didn't look that way when the orders were placed a few months ago, and or when arrangements were made. But the world changed for airlines, and I and I wish them well. But it's one of the businesses we have. We have businesses we own directly that are going to be hurt significantly. The virus will cost Berkshire money. It doesn't cost money because. Of, our stock and various other businesses moves around. I mean, if uh, XYZ, which is say is one of our holdings, and we, we own it as a business and we like the business, the stock goes down 20 or 30 or 40 percent. We don't feel we're poorer in that situation. We felt we were poorer in terms of what actually happened to those airline businesses, just as if we owned 100 percent of them. So that explains those sales, which are relatively minor, but I want to make sure that nobody thinks that that, that involves a market prediction. And that pretty well wraps it up for, for Berkshire. The first question, though, comes from one that just came in based on the comments that you were actually saying. Um, this is a question that comes from William Lewis. He said, please, did I understand correctly, Mr. Buffett, to say that Berkshire Hathaway sold its interests in four different airlines? And if so, can you name them? Can the names of those airlines be identified? Yeah, the, I, I wouldn't normally talk about it, but I think it, it, re, it requires an explanation. And, uh, uh, and it requires an explanation that means we were not disappointed at all in... Uh, the businesses that they were being run and the management, and, and, but we did come to a different opinion on it. And the, the four large, they're the four largest uh, U.S. airlines. It's the American Airlines and Delta Airlines and Southwest Airlines and United Continental. And I think collectively they, they probably, uh, or at least 80% of the revenue passenger miles in the, in the, uh, uh, it has flown in the United States, and, and they have significant uh, international uh, uh, flying, too, as, uh, excluding Southwest. So we like those airlines, we like, but we, we don't I like the, the world has changed for the airlines, and I don't know how it's changed, and I hope it corrects itself uh, in a reasonably prompt way. I don't know whether the um, Americans will have now changed their habits or will change their habits because of of uh, an extended period if it happens that uh, we're semi-shut down uh, in, the, in the economy. Uh, I don't know whether the trends toward, you know, what people have been doing by by phone. I mean, I've been, it's been seven weeks since I've had a haircut. It's seven, been seven weeks since I 
more than seven weeks since I put on a tie or anything. I've been just a question of which sweatsuit I wear. So <laughs> who knows? Uh, who knows how we come out of this? But I think that there's certain industries, and unfortunately, I think that the airline industry, um, among others, that are really hurt by a a forced, in fact, shut down by events that are far beyond their control. Greg, would you like to add anything to that? Really nothing to add, Warren. Okay. Well, <laughs> we got another Charlie here. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't I intend to Charlie. use that as a line, but, uh, you know, you've covered it well. Yeah, we, we would have bought other airlines, too, incidentally, but those were the four big ones, and that, those ones we could put some money into, and we put... We put whatever it was, seven or eight billion into it, and we did not take out anything like seven or eight billion, and that was my mistake. But it was—it's always a problem if it, uh, uh, there there are things on the lower levels of probabilities that happen sometimes, and and it happened to the airlines, and and I'm the one who made the decision. But Warren, just to clarify on his question, he asked, "Did you sell oh, your whole stake I'm, in all four yeah, of those?" Yeah, the answer is yes. Yeah, when we when we sell something, uh, right, when we next- sell something, very often it's going to be our entire stake. I mean, we we, we don't trim positions or that. That's just not the way we approach it. Any more than if we buy a hundred percent of a business, we're going to sell it down to ninety percent or eighty percent. I mean, if we if we like a business, we're going to buy as much of it as we can and keep it as long as we can. But when we change our mind, right, the yeah, next go question. Ahead, I'm sorry. <clears throat> No, go ahead. When you change your mind. Well, when when we change our mind, we don't we don't uh, take half measures or anything of the sort. So, I was amazed at how, we, frankly, now we sell, we were selling them at far lower prices than we paid, but I was amazed at the the volume. Their airlines always trade in in large volume relatively, but but we 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 have sold the entire positions. Berkshire itself has a Fort Knox-like balance sheet, but some of its operating companies may be tight on cash during the pandemic. Uh, would Berkshire consider sending cash to its operating companies to, one, ensure that they can get through the pandemic, and, and two, uh, allow them to increase market share while their competitors struggle? Well, we've sent money to a few, and, and uh, uh, we're in a position to do that. We're not going to send money indefinitely to anything where it looks like uh, their future uh, is not has just changed dramatically from what it was a year or so ago, or even six months ago. You know, we made that decision in terms of the airline business. We took money out of the business, basically, at a, even at a substantial loss, and we will not fund a company that uh, where we think that it's going to chew up money in the in the future. We started out with a company like that in our textile business at Berkshire Hathaway in 1965 and we went for 20 years trying to think we could solve something that wasn't that solvable so uh we are not in the business of subsidizing uh any companies with shareholders money if people want to do that with their own money but we're not going to do it on their behalf but we have advanced money we we're, we're perfectly ready to advance money gaining market share and all that that may happen but but uh the companies that that need money probably uh, market share is not their number one problem. I'll put it that way. <laughs> Greg, would you? <laughs> yeah. 
Well, yeah, it's interesting when we look at our different companies as we went into the pandemic or we're addressing the COVID-19 crisis. Obviously, the first focus by our management team inappropriately was our employees and, and, and effectively making sure they're safe and that the business environment we're in that, that they could continue to operate. Then we quickly moved to looking at uh, where our customers were in this cycle, i.e. what was the underlying demand within the business. And, and to great credit to our managers, they very much have adjusted their businesses consistent with the underlying needs and demands of our of, of our customers. So effectively, they're moving with the, with the customer, meaning very few of our businesses have actually required funds. Some have, and as Warren said, uh, we've advanced the funds to them, but the, the businesses have really reacted in a way where they're managing consistent with, the, with uh, where the market's at, i.e. Their, the demand for their products. Yeah. Berkshire is almost certain to generate cash. I mean, it, it, uh, nothing's 100% certain. But, but, and we're, as Greg mentioned, at, at Berkshire Hathaway Energy, we had some short-term financing. We, we don't have short-term financing to any degree. We'll never get ourselves in a position where we have a lot of money that can come due tomorrow. And, and uh, people that were financing uh, heavily with commercial paper and then found their business stopped. Well, you've seen what's happened to the airlines. I mean, they need money. Uh, cruise lines need money. Uh, there's some businesses that, uh, you know, it's just the nature of uh, what they're in. And, uh, Berkshire will never get it in a position where it, uh, it needs money. But, uh, uh, and, and we factor in, like I say, we, we factor in some things that are not ridiculously unlikely uh, and I'm not going to spell out scenarios because I to some extent you start spe- spurring, is, is, is spelling out scenarios you may increase the chance of them happening so it's not something that we really want to talk about a lot but but our uh, our position will be to be uh, to stay at Fort Knox but we don't need no, we don't need a and it's a little higher now than it was at quarter end. We don't need 130 or 35 billion, but we need a lot of money that's always available. And that means we own nothing but treasury bills. I mean, we do not, we've never owned, we never buy commercial paper. We don't buy, we don't count on bank lines. Uh, you know, one or two of our subsidiaries, a few of our subsidiaries have them, but they, we, we, we basically want to be in a position to get through anything. And, and we hope we, that doesn't happen, but, you can't rule out the possibility any more than in 1929. You could rule out the possibility that that uh, you know you would be waiting until 1955 or ni- the end of 1954 to get even. Uh, anything can happen, and, and we want to be prepared for anything. But we also want to do big things. If the prices are attractive, as Greg said, there was a period right before the Fed acted, we were starting to get calls. They weren't attractive calls, but we were getting calls and the companies we were getting calls from after the Fed acted, a number of them were able to get money in the public market, frankly, at terms that we wouldn't have given it to them. This question comes from David Cass. 
He is a, a clinical professor of finance at the University of Maryland, and he says uh, Berkshire has invested in many companies with stock buyback programs. Recently, there's been a backlash against buybacks. What are your views on this subject? Well, it's very politically correct to be against buybacks now. I'm, in, and you know, and they're going to incorporate it in the loan program. I mean, the the there's a lot of crazy things said on buybacks. Buybacks are so simple. I mean, it uh, it's a way of distributing cash to shareholders. And let's just say that you and I and Greg, the three of us, decide to buy an auto dealership or a McDonald's franchise or something, and we each put a million dollars in, you know, or whatever the number may be. And we get along with each other, and the business grows and all of that. And one of us really wants to spend our share of the earnings. Uh, and the other two want to leave the money in the business to grow. Uh, now, if the three of us did that, and we only, we're the only shareholders, we would not establish a 100% dividend payout for everybody, and we wouldn't freeze the one that wanted to get out either. The logical thing to do is to buy a portion, whatever that person wants to spend annually from the earnings, buy a portion of their stock, and the other two find their interest in the company goes up, and the third person still has a little more of an interest by what they they leave in, but they also can take some money out of the business. You're taking money out of the business in, the, in either case, and one, you call dividends, and you send it to everybody whether they want it or not, and with buybacks, you give it to the ones who want the money. And I have been following a policy of giving away stock now since 2006, and I'll give away a lot of stock, but the people, the, the philanthropies that, that receive it, uh, the gifts have to spend the money uh, very promptly within, you know, on a current basis, more or less. So they are getting $3 billion worth of stock or whatever it may be, and I'm in effect reducing my interest in Berkshire, but I'm still... Berkshire's still retaining more capital than I'm giving away. So, so I have more dollars invested, but my interest goes down. And the people that need the cash to carry out the philanthropic efforts, they cash out the stock. And I don't force, I don't force my sister or whoever it may be to take a bunch of money she doesn't want. She wants it reinvested, all of it reinvested in the business. And people that, that uh, don't want to can sell some of their stock and... Uh, the company ends up in the same position. We've distributed some of the capital that we don't need for growth. Now, whether the company should buy it depends on a couple of things. One is they ought to retain the money they need for intelligent growth prospects. That's fine. And secondly, and this is a point that's never mentioned, they should be buying it back below what they think it's worth. Now, they'll make mistakes in that, but you make mistakes in a lot of business decisions, but over that should be the guiding principle. And to my knowledge, uh, J.P. Morgan, Jamie Dimon said it once, and we've said it various times, you know, we retain, st we, 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 we will repurchase shares when it's to the advantage of the continuing shareholder to have us do so. But you read about all these buyback programs, they say we're going to spend $5 billion buying it back or $10 billion. Well, that's like saying I'm going to go out and buy some business this year for $5 billion without knowing what you're going to get for the money. It, it, it should be price sensitive, obviously. It should be needs sensitive, obviously. But 
when the conditions are right, it should also be obvious to repurchase shares, and there shouldn't be the slightest taint to it any more than there is to dividends. And people that have now sort of taken up the cries about how terrible it was that companies bought back stock. Well, you can say it was terrible for them to pay dividends, too, then they'd have more money now. But they were doing what was intelligent at the time, and I hope they continue to do what's intelligent as they go forth. Greg? No, I, the only thing I know you've commented on in the past, Warren, is that I think the one thing we are seeing, and obviously we're supportive of, of uh, buybacks, but there are companies that used probably their financial engineering was just a little... Uh, Extreme. <laughs> extreme and too cute that effectively you're using every ounce of your balance sheet to buy back stock at a time where you're really creating no cushion for your business uh, for any type of event or bump in the road. And I, you know, we're going to see that. And I think that's a very unfortunate outcome of them. And hence you get some of the backlash. But there's still companies, as you highlighted, many that do it right. Yeah. Now, if they're buying it back because it's fashionable, because they really do like the idea. There's nothing wrong with doing taking an action that increases the value of the remaining shares. But if they're doing it very... And, I, and incidentally, I've been witness to some programs where it really is stupid. Uh, but I don't think it's immoral. I just think it's stupid, you know, basically. Uh, and on the other hand, I, we favor companies that take care of all their requirements for growth and, as Greg says, maintain sound balance sheets and all of that. Leave a margin of error for things that you can get surprised with. And if they find their stock selling below the mm. what they, the business is intrinsically worth, uh, I think that they're making a big mistake if they don't buy in their stock. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's going to be a political football. And like I say, that when, when it becomes politically correct to do something in this country, if you're a politician, the best thing to do is get on board. But, but <laughs> it, Berkshire is going to do what it thinks makes sense for shareholders. And we, and we like investing in companies that think that way, too. And not all companies yeah. obviously do. Anderson Haxton wrote in, he said, Warren mentioned that Ben Graham is one of the three smartest people he's ever met. I'd like to ask him the names of the other two. Well, I, I may not be one of the smartest, but I'm smart enough not to name the other two. I'd make two people happy. In a, but, but I would, it, it isn't, a, Ben Graham is one of the three smartest people. And I, I've known some really smart people. Uh, uh, smartness is not necessarily um, uh, does not necessarily equate to wisdom uh, either. And Ben Graham, one of the things he said he liked to do every day was he, he wanted to do something creative, something generous, and something foolish. And uh, he said he was pretty good at the latter. <laughs> but he was pretty good. He was amazing, actually, at the creative. But, but uh, it's, it's interesting that... IQ does not always translate into rationality and, and uh, behavioral success or wisdom. And so I, uh, I know some people that are extraordinarily wise that would not be in the top three on an IQ test. But if I wanted their judgment on some matter, uh, even if I want to put them in a position of responsibility someplace, I might prefer them to 
So we'll say one of the three. That'll leave the other two feeling fine of the three. <laughs> Greg, do you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> nope. I, I, I agree with uh, the person you named. Yeah. yeah there's... And Becky, I would, I would just, I, I would just say again uh, that uh, we may have. I hope we don't. But we, we may get some unpleasant surprises, and, and, and um, we're dealing with a virus that that. Uh, that that spreads its wings in a certain way, you know, in very un, unpredictable ways, and how the how the how the how Americans react to it, you know, there's all kinds of possibilities. But I definitely come to the conclusion after weighing all that sort of stuff, never bet against America. So thanks. <laughs> Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate okay. your time tonight. And we'll see you next year and we'll have we'll fill this place. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>